Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Did you know that there are people that actually believe that aliens, outer space aliens I'm talking about, that aliens built the pyramids? There are. Uh, there are also people that believe that aliens abduct human beings. They believe that aliens, there are other people that believe aliens run the government. There's some merit to that argument. There are others that say there are aliens in a secure location in a Nevada desert. There are people that believe in a thing called dousing. It's where you take hold of a, of a fork stick, a, a, usually they say a willow, and you can find water, dousing. There are people that believe that actually works. There are people that believe in the existence of Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, Abominable Snowman. I'm sure you've seen him outside your bedroom window. There are people that believe in that stuff. There are people that believe in a thing called spontaneous human combustion. Have you heard of that? You'd just be driving along, smoke will start coming out your sleeve, you're on fire. Spontaneous human combustion. People actually believe that. People believe that the Bermuda Triangle has unusual powers. There are other people that believe in spite of what Mr. Magellan did in circumnavigating the globe four or five centuries ago, that the earth is flat as a pancake. There are other people that believe all the space travel that we've ever seen, all faked, done on a sound studio somewhere. There are people that believe Elvis is alive, that Hitler is alive, that Kennedy is alive. People that actually believe this stuff. Now, I learned all that I know about that <clears throat> from late night radio. But there are people that believe that. Now, what we're talking about with all of that and more is we're talking about faith when we talk about what people believe. We're talking about faith, really. Or what, or what people allow themselves to believe. We're talking about faith. Now, we've been dealing for the last number of Sundays with questions Jesus asked that we should answer. And we've discovered that in the pages of the gospel, there are at least 295 questions that Jesus asked. We're on about number 19 today, so we've got a good supply left. But our question today from Jesus, where is your faith? Where is your faith? You will spot that question if you'll turn to Luke chapter 8. You'll find it in a story that will unfold today involving Jesus asking some questions. And this story that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 8, it is a natural follow-up to what we dealt with last week. If you were here, you'll remember that we talked about a woman who said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment... I'll be healed. She did and she was. And this story that we're going to look at today is a natural follow-up to hers because she was a person who had imperfect faith. 
And now we're going to encounter today some people who act as if they did not have any faith at all. Now Jesus has been involved in a number of important things. He's told the great parable of the sower. He has talked about the parable of the lamp. He has ministered to some women around him. He has performed various healings and delivered people from demonic forces. He's really done a stellar job up to this point. And it says that on a certain day, one of those days, verse 22, if you're in Luke chapter 8, that on one of those days when this was just the things he was doing, that on one of those days he and his disciples got into a boat. When Matthew tells this story, he says the disciples followed him into the boat. And and that's what good disciples of Jesus should do. We've been talking about this as well. Disciple means learner. It means apprentice. It means follower. There are plenty of people who say, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is not interested in those who believe in him. The Bible says the demons believe. That's no big deal. But he's looking for followers. And on this day, it says that the disciples followed him into the boat, and that's what good Disciples should do, follow Jesus. They got into the boat, Jesus and his 12 men, and he proposed, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Now, it's outside of our story today, but on the other side of that lake, there's some demoniacs that he will set free. Now, if you put all this story together and crunched it and you ask the disciples at the end of it all, what was this all about? They would say, well, we had to get to the other side of the lake because there were some people there that were demonized and Jesus had to set them free. That's what they would have said. But you know what Jesus would have said? He would have said, no, what happened on that lake that night, that was the most important thing. And that's because we are very goal-oriented. Jesus is very process-oriented. We always think, oh, I've got to get somewhere. Jesus is saying, it's what you're doing on the getting while you're going that I can work in your life. It's the process that he's interested in. The process is he's making us into people like him, and he uses the process. But they get into the boat, and Jesus says, we've got to go over to the other side of the lake. So off they go. They cast off. They're sailing along, and it's smooth sailing, so smooth, that Jesus in the back of the boat curls up on a big cushion and falls asleep. Now, a lot of times we forget Jesus... While he is God, he's also man. He's both. He's the only one to have two natures. But that human nature got tired. He'd been involved in a lot of things up to this point, and so he fell asleep, exhausted on the cushion. And while he's sleeping, a storm comes up, and it's a big one. It's such a big storm that they're frightened. And, and, and when Matthew tells the story again. He says there is a shaking on the sea. It feels like that in that boat. And it's so bad that they're afraid they're going to die. Maybe their sail has been destroyed. Their oars have been lost. Maybe the boat has begun to take on water and they're starting to sink and they're worried and they're frightened literally to death almost. And so they wake Jesus up laying on that cushion. And they say, Master, we're perishing. Lord, we're perishing here. We're going to die here if somebody doesn't do something. When Mark is telling this story, 
They're accusing him. They're saying, don't you care? And he gets up and he says to them, why are you afraid? No need to be afraid. I'm here. And as long as I'm here, things are never completely out of control like you think they are. So why are you afraid? The presence of fear betrays their absence of belief. They have no faith. And so Jesus asked them our question today, so where is your faith? And then in the next breath, he turns to the waves and the wind, and he says, quiet. And it's quiet. To the point, this is early in their experience with Jesus, they They don't really know him all that well up to this point. They've seen him do a few miracles, but they're still fairly clueless as to who they're dealing with. And they say, who is this that he can command the wind and the waves? And they listen to him. But his question is, why are you afraid? And the real question is, where is your faith? So that's a good question for you and for me, too. Where is your faith? How about we don't just read this story or talk about this story. How about we step into this story and let that question be directed at you and at me? So where is your faith? Well, one answer could be, in the form of a question, is it non-existent? Where is your faith? Does it even exist? You know, this whole issue of the existence of faith, belief, trust in the lives of people was a very troubling issue apparently for Jesus because later on at one point he will say, you know, when I return, I wonder, will I even find faith on the earth? It seems to be such a fragile thing and such a rare thing. When I come back, is anybody even going to have faith anymore? So it was a concerning issue for him. And he's asking when he says, where is your faith? He he might be asking, do you really have any faith? That's what he means by where is your faith. That's what he's asking. Do you even have any faith? Is it non-existent? Well, we say, well, yeah, of course I have faith. At least it exists. It's not non-existent. Where's the evidence? If we say we have faith, where is the evidence? Now, I'm not sure about everybody. My life has been spent, strangely, to me anyway, inside the church. That's a world that I know pretty well. Within the body of Christ, I know that world pretty well. My life has been spent there. So for a person going to church, not everybody, everywhere, and certainly not people outside of the body of Christ, but for those who go to church, and and for the many more who say, I am a believer, I am a professing Christian, but they seldom make it to church. They have no time for the body of Christ, which is odd to me that somebody would say, I want a relationship with the head, with Christ, but I don't want a relationship with His body, which is the church. That seems very odd to me. Next time you have a girlfriend, 
why don't you pull that on her and say, you know, I want to have a relationship with your mind, but I'm not interested in, in your body. And she'll walk away saying, what kind of weirdo are you? But there are lots of people that want that. They want a relationship with Christ, but not his body, and I don't think it works that way. But to those who are in the church and and to the many more who say, I am a Christian, and they live that split personality category that the New Testament doesn't know anything about, here's how that question could be answered. Where is the evidence? If you say you have faith, what is the proof? Where's the evidence? Here's how the question could be answered. Is my life any different from that next door neighbor, those neighbors around me whose car never moves on Sunday morning? I bring it up that way because your neighbors do notice when your car moves on Sunday morning. And just your car leaving your spot in front of the house or your driveway It sends a message to your neighbors, even if they never talk about it. Your neighbors notice that you're going to church on Sunday morning, especially if you do it consistently. Think of it this way. If a a crime occurs and you disappear, you get kidnapped by Somali pirates or somebody, and they come and they, they interview your neighbors to get information about your habits. And your neighbor would say, well, we always noticed that they went to church on Sunday and they left around 10:15, just like clockwork. They notice. Your neighbors, when they see your car moving that way, they assume you are a Christian. People notice is my point. But is your life any different? Do you live any differently than your neighbor who doesn't go to church, than your neighbor who does not profess Christ? Is your day the same as their day or any different? In the day-to-day way your life is arranged, are you just like everybody else? Is your time allocated any differently or is it allocated the same? How about the way you spend your money or the way you talk or the way you look at the sky? Is it any differently than the people around you that don't profess Christ? the way you approach problems, the way you allocate your money again, the way you worry about your kids, the the way you deal with frustration. Is it any different from everybody else? How about the way you think about politics? You may say, yes, it is. But the Bible says that the power, the reality, and the presence of God is not in words, but it's in deeds. It's in action. So where's the proof? Outside of what you say, where is the proof that you have faith? If you were on trial, think of it. The day would come when you would be put on trial, accused of being a fanatical follower of Jesus Christ. Would the prosecution bringing the case be able to find enough evidence to convict you beyond a shadow of a doubt. In that trial, as it proceeded, would it be clearly evident to 12 people that Jesus Christ is the most important thing in your whole life? That that He is so captivated and taken over your life that 12 people would believe in their heart that He is living His life inside of you. Is it that clear? Do you have that kind of faith? 
Where's your faith? Does it even exist? There's another way to think about it. What is the trajectory of your faith? Thinking about when I was a kid and would listen to the, to the space shots on television, the orbiting of the Mercury and the Gemini and then the Apollo project and finally landing on the moon. And one of the things that they would talk about was the trajectory of the missile had to be just right, had to be on the money, or they're not going to wind up on the moon. They're going to wind up somewhere else. Thinking about those early NASA shots, the trajectory determines the outcome. I heard somebody say one time, those who aim at nothing, talking about life, those who aim at nothing hit it with amazing accuracy. So what are you aiming at? What's your life aimed at? What's your faith aimed at? What is the trajectory of your faith? Because trajectory determines outcome. So in what direction is your faith pointed? In this case, Jesus is saying, when he asks the question, where is your faith? He's saying, right now, if we went looking for it, looking for your faith, where is your faith? Where would we find it. It exists, but where would we find it, is his question. What is your faith in? For many people, even professing Christians, Bible-reading Christians, church-going Christians, for many, their faith is in their skills, in their resources, in their connections, in their money-earning potential, in their abilities. That's what their faith is in. That's what they're banking on. That's what they're counting on to get through. So is your faith in those things, or is your faith in Christ? I recently read an autobiography of a man named Whitaker Chambers. Whitaker Chambers entitled his autobiography, Witness, Witness. And in his autobiography, Chambers says there are only two places really to place your faith. One is with putting your faith in man and what human beings can do in yourself or other people or in God. Those are your only two choices really for where you place your faith. Now, Chambers was a dedicated communist. He was a thoroughgoing, card-carrying, proud member of the American Communist Party. And he was so dedicated to the goals of communism that he eventually joined the Soviet underground and he became a spy for the Communist Party. And in that position, he was in regular contact with highly placed other communist spies that were within our State Department and within our Treasury Department in Washington, D.C. He was completely sold out. He was lock, stock, and barrel sold out to the goals of communism because he believed in what people could do. He did not believe in what God could do. Until one day, 
He was sitting in his apartment looking at his little girl. She was two years old. She was sitting in the high chair eating some cereal. And he watched her as she would pick up that cereal, and sometimes she would purposely plop it over the edge and look at it. And sometimes she would take it and smear it on her face. Once in a while, she would accidentally eat it. But he was fascinated. You parents know what it is to look at your child that way. When he began to focus on her ear, on the turns and the curves of her ear, And as this man who did not believe in any kind of a God, he believed in what people could do. He believed in himself. He believed in man, not God. He began to look at his little girl's ear, the design of it, and he began to realize that thing is so fascinating to me. It is a miracle, and it did not just happen. It was designed. And if it was designed, there's a designer. And that led him to Christ. And so when he published his autobiography, it was really not a witness against communism or even a witness for freedom. It was really a witness for Christ, saying that there are only two ways that you can go. There are only two places to run, really. Either you put your faith in human beings or you put your faith in God. And he saw that the epic struggle wasn't political or economic. There are a number of people that are going to be disappointed this November. You watch. Hope it's nobody in this room. Because one side or the other is going to win. And judging from the intensity levels that we're seeing, many people right now are setting themselves up for a disappointment come the fall. Many invest so heavily in politics, in elected offices, in government, because it's the biggest thing they know, but it's not the biggest thing there is. But the great struggle of the ages and of every single life, it's not a political struggle, but it's about faith, and there are only two choices where you can place your faith, either in man and man's reason and man's mind, and what man can know and what men can do, and what people can experience Or you place your faith in God. There's only two. One or the other of those is going to be the greatest thing in your life. It's going to be your object of deepest faith. People, yourself, or God. And if it's God, then you have a purpose. If if your faith is in God, then there is a purpose, and you are here because you were intended to be here, and you were created by God. But if your faith is in people, in human beings, then it's all chance. There is no God. And you mean very little. Your kids mean very little. Or they only mean what some person, yourself, or some other person says they mean. So where's your faith? Where's your faith? Again, not not words, not what you say about where your faith is, but how is your life ordered? What story does your life tell about where your faith is? Who are you living for? Where's your faith? That's Jesus' question. Is it in yourself? You were designed to worship a great God, 
an awesome God, a God too big to be contained in our brain. You were designed to worship God and not yourself. And if your confidence and your trust is in yourself or it's in other human beings, even another human being that you love, a spouse or children or a boss, then you're expecting too much, you see. That's a load that's too big to carry. But it also may explain why things aren't working out for you and why you're frustrated more than you're satisfied. Where's your faith? Jesus says, come unto me. It was in one of the songs that we sang a moment ago. Come unto me, he says. You see, there's a throne in your heart that was designed for God alone. And we need to get off that throne because we're not in charge. He is. Our faith should not be in a human being, even ourselves. It should be in Him. Where's your faith? That's a personal question for you, see. Where's your faith? You can also think of it this way. Who's your faith in? Maybe that's what he's asking when he asks the question, where's your faith? Who is, who is your faith in? The last three or four decades, there has been a movement that has sidelined many Christians, well-meaning people. It's called the Faith Movement. What a great title it has. But that wonderful title doesn't indicate the ugliness underneath. The faith movement was the brainchild of a man by the name of E.W. Kenyon. The beginning of the 1900s, Kenyon was a believer in all sorts of what we would call new age ideas, new thought, theosophy, all kind of out there concepts. What believers today call the faith movement originated with him. He passed it along through his writings to a man by the name of Kenneth Hagin. You may have heard that name. He's revered in the faith circles today. Hagin picked up the ideas of Kenyon. The idea basically is that faith is a creative force. Especially when it is spoken, if words of faith are spoken, they have creative powers. And it's really pushing an idea of faith not in God, not in the redeeming work of Christ. It's faith not in the goodness of a good God, but it's really faith in faith. The best kind of faith comes when you realize that you're in a desperate situation. That you're out of schemes and you're out of resources and your abilities are inadequate and it's when you turn to Christ alone that you begin to have the best kind of faith. You you reach a level of desperation like that man that was dying on the cross next to Jesus. One man dying next to Christ mocked and made fun and And he joined the ugliness of the crowd that were hurling abuse at Jesus on the center cross. But another man, he, knowing his own heart that he was a sinner, he was a thief, a a thief, probably a a robber as well, an anarchist, a, a troublemaker of the first order, and he was deserving what he got. He turned to Christ on the center cross and he said, remember me. 
Jesus, don't forget me. One of the worst things, I guess, is to be forgotten, especially in the hour of death. And he says, don't forget me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. I won't forget you. It's when we reach that level of desperation and we cry out to a good God. In that man's case, he was already in agony and he was facing an eternity with no assurances, no guarantees. He was way, had wasted his life. And now as he hangs there dying, the die is cast and he's certain to be lost and to be forever falling further and further away from God and all that's good. But that's all of us. That man is all of us, you see. We are all just that desperate, and we need to understand that we all face that same level of desperation, and it's only when we realize that we are hopeless, and the only game in town is Jesus Christ. That's where our faith has got to be. Where's your faith? Who's your faith in? Jesus only. Only in Jesus. It's an old song that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only lean on Jesus' name. He's the only one that we can trust. There was a fellow who went back, traveled some distance to visit an old friend that he'd grown up with, gone to high school with, gone to college. They'd been friends. They'd gone their separate ways as they got older. And the friend he was going to visit had earned a full professorship in philosophy at a university. He was a brilliant guy. But now he had a terminal illness. He was dying And so his longtime friend, he goes to visit him. He drives in from out of town and spends some time with him. It was a good day, the day of the visit. And the fellow was feeling better than he had felt in a few days, so they decided to take a little drive, go see some scenery, get out of the house. So they did. It was with difficulty that the sick man was lowered into the car. Two other friends that were also visiting him went along for the ride. They saw some scenery and had a good time and good air and all the rest. And on the way back, the two friends got in the back seat. The sick man sat in the passenger and the fellow who had come some distance to visit was driving. And it was then that they had a little bit of alone time and they could talk. And the sick fellow knows he's dying. He says to his friend that he'd come to see him, do you know know what these friends of mine have been doing for three days that they visited me? They've been reading philosophy to me. They've been reading the great philosophers from the ancient world, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, Seneca, Cicero. They've been been reading the modern philosophies to me, Heidegger and Sartre and Kant, 
And I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. It's what he'd given his whole life to. And he says, I'm awfully tired of hearing it. And then he pulled his face closer to his friend, the driver, and he repeated some words that he had been taught as a young child in a class in church. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And he said, there is nothing else of any use to me now except that. Christ only. He's the only solid rock that there is. Where is your faith? It's got to be in Christ. I want you to stand with me. And I want you to step into that story and let Jesus' question be a question directly to you. Close your eyes for a moment. Not because it's magical, but only to eliminate a few distractions. And I want you to let Him ask your heart that question, where is your faith? Is it in your ability? Are you counting on your, your retirement fund? You're counting on that good insurance policy. Are you counting on somebody else to help you through? To prop you up emotionally? To give you good advice and answers? Are you counting on a therapist? Are you counting on a doctor? Are you counting on your own abilities? Are you counting on your ability to earn money? Where's your faith? Is your faith in any or all of those things, or is your faith in Jesus Christ? Is He your only solid rock? Have you thrown everything on Him? Your family, your future, your health, your mental stability, is it all on Him? Somebody said He will be Lord, Master of all, or He won't be Lord at all said a moment ago that Jesus is not interested in looking for believers. Our nation is full of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ with their mouth. They fit comfortably into that category that the Old Testament describes as lip service. They serve God with their lips. But Jesus Christ is not looking for believers. He's looking for followers. Do you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Will you put Him first on the throne of your life. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.